millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Your host, Andrew Donaldson. This is Heard Tell. Ah, uh, welcome to May, folks. It's our Tell Show. I'm Andrew Donaldson. It's the second day of May. Year of our Lord 2022 continues to roll along. You realize we're almost halfway through this thing already, and it's amazing how fast time flies. Hope you had a great weekend, and we hope you and yours are well wherever you are. Thank you for joining us and giving us the most precious thing you have, your time covering a lot of different things on the show today going to try to turn down the noise on a couple of different items one is we keep seeing these videos of the russian tanks in ukraine with the turns blown off there's a reason for that and it's not just mechanical it's also ideology wise we'll explain that in just a little bit uh we're going to finish the program with a happy note 105 year old world war ii vet out in wisconsin is having a little party with his friends Three people, 100 years old in this one little Wisconsin town. Must be something in the water up there. We'll celebrate them in a little bit. Also, remember the Amazon warehouse that was destroyed by tornadoes in Illinois. We're going to review that. OSHA has made a finding in that. We'll talk about that in just a little bit. But first, we need to talk about our wonderful guest. She is back. We always enjoy talking to her, Gabriella Hoffman. We're going to talk some conservation today. Conservation, environmentalism. Uh, where those two clash. In a lot of cases, they clash where they don't need to clash. There's some overlap where they could get along if everybody just sit down and talk for a second about it and talk about how that affects things like land usage, putting things in conservatorships, the government taking over lands to protect it. What is good and not good use of land? And is it good and really good conservation to just take land and not use it for anything at all? Talk about all these with a great guest, our good friend, Gabriella Hoffman. Excited to talk to her today, but let's start a uh, little domestic politics right off the bat. People are still freaking out over Elon Musk and Twitter. And one of the new things about Elon Musk and Twitter that they're getting onto is whether or not Donald Trump is going to be let back on Twitter. Now, again, we covered this on Thursday with our friend RJ Lehman. This deal is not done. Elon Musk is not in charge of Twitter and will not be for some months to come. It's going to take a while to get this deal done. If it goes through at all, I'm still skeptical. We'll see what happens. There's a lot of regulatory hoops that's got to go through this thing. So it's going to be a long time before Elon Musk is actually in charge. But let's just go with the premise for a second. Is Donald Trump going to be let back on Twitter? I don't know. But the freak out over whether he's back on Twitter by the news media is ridiculous. 
and it's also hypocritical. Our friend Eric Medlin wrote in Ordinary-Times.com back on Friday about this. Um, over the weekend on CNN, there was a gentleman who I'm not going to name because he was utterly ridiculous talking about how Donald Trump had opened the gates of hell with the way he tweeted. Folks, there's some revisionist history going on about Donald Trump and his Twitter account. Donald Trump's Twitter account had a lot to do with him becoming president. It had a lot to do with how his presidency went forward. And you could say it may have hurt him when they took him off Twitter. That's another debate for another day. But let's talk about this revisionist news history for just a second with the news media, because there's a lot of noise about this. Nobody made the news media cover every single thing Donald Trump tweeted. Here's how this works. And I'm guilty of it, too, because I was writing with Ordinary Times by then. We would all wake up and you would wait. It was a joke. You could go on Twitter or any other social media platform. And the running joke was the first time the president tweeted something. You go up, oh, the president's awake, and then everybody started working. It's because everybody got conditioned to use those tweets as the basis of their news reporting for the day. It made it easy. It made everything go smoothly. It put everybody on a schedule. You could be done with your whole day by lunch. President tweets something ridiculous or usually four or five things that were totally off the wall. And there's your content for the whole day. Now, if you're a news media network news program, you would just do as follows. You would have your lead item about whatever the president tweeted. Then your second segment is an expert coming on to talk about what the president tweeted. Then you come back for your third segment, which was a panel discussion, talking about what the expert had talked about, talking about what the president had tweeted. There's your first 30 minutes of every news program during the Trump presidency. It made it easy. They loved it. They amplified his tweets. That wasn't all on Donald Trump. It made good ratings. It made good content. It made everybody's life easier. So there's quite a bit of hypocrisy here talking about how terrible Donald Trump's tweeting did damage to the republic or did damage to media or pick whatever bugaboo you got on what it destroyed this week. The news media made a conscious decision to amplify those tweets because it was easy and it was profitable and it was good for ratings and they wanted to do it. They decided to do it. Nobody made them cover Donald Trump's tweets. So the hypocrisy level is getting a little bit high here about how Donald Trump's tweeting almost destroyed America. No, it didn't. America's fine. Now there's damage because of some policies and the debates and the way we treated each other. And we can argue the policies of Donald Trump and we can argue his moral failings as well. And we have on this program. We call it as we see it. We don't play favorites and we're not on teams here. But for the news media to pretend like they didn't have a hand in the elevation of Donald Trump's tweeting is absolutely hypocritical and ridiculous. They did it because they wanted to. They did it because they had a monetized reason to do it. And mostly they did it because it was easy. I know it. I did it too. Wake up, write your piece about whatever the president tweeted, and go about your day nice and easy. So skip the revisionist history about Donald Trump's tweeting. The news media needed it just as much as Donald Trump did. We have all the studies now of the billions and billions of dollars of free advertising he got because of the way he was covered. Symbiotic creatures sometimes don't realize how symbiotic they were. And the news media and Donald Trump were definitely symbiotic creatures. They both got what they wanted out of it. If you feel dirty or you feel ashamed of how you treated the Trump years, looking back on it now, that's on you. That's a you problem. That's not on us. And it's not Twitter's fault. More Hertel right after this.
Welcome back to Hertel. Let's go over to Ukraine real quick. Uh, Russia tanks have been getting chewed up. We've covered it on this program before. Uh, basically, a small crew of folks can run up with a shoulder-fired weapon like a javelin. Uh, they've also been using drones and some other technology, and they can kill a multi-million dollar tank relatively inefficiently, relatively cheaply with a shoulder-fired weapon, and it's chewing them up. The Soviets have lost over 500 tanks by some estimate, maybe even more. Part of the problem, the Washington Post details this with some wonderful graphics and detail, um, is the T-72 tank design, the most proficient tank design currently in operation in the world, has a fatal flaw in it. Uh, from the uh, Washington Post, um, the fault is related in many ways. Russian tanks hold and load ammunition. These tanks, especially the T-72, the Soviet design, hold on that Soviet part for a second. It's very important here. Wide use in the Russian invasion of Ukraine, shells are all placed in a ring within the turn. When an enemy shot hits the right spot, the ring of ammunition can quickly cook off and ignite a chain reaction, blasting the turret off the tank's hull in a lethal blow. That's why you're seeing so many pictures of the turrets laying off somewhere else. That means the ammunition blew up and blew the tank up from within. For a Russian crew, this is a quote from uh, Robert E. Hamilton, professor at U.S. Army War College. For a Russian crew, if the ammo storage compartment is hit, everyone's dead. Um, it instantaneously vaporizes the crew. All those rounds around 40, depending on if they're carrying a full load or not, are all going to cook off and everyone is going to be dead. Uh, British Defense Secretary Ben Wallace this week estimated the Russians had lost at least 530 tanks, destroyed or captured since the invasion. Ammunition in most Western tanks that are kept in the turn under a heavy hull or in the back of the turn, like in the Abrams. While a turret-placed ammunition storage compartment is potentially vulnerable to a hit, built-in features can prevent the same level of decapitating devastation seen in the T-72. Uh, what's happening here, just to cut this down a little bit, um, like in our Abrams or the German Leopards are the two examples here, the crew door, there's a blast door, and the loader actually manually opens the door, gets the ammunition out, loads it, and the door slams back shut. And then if that compartment is breached, there's blowout panels and the explosion goes away from the crew compartment and the crew has a higher chance of sustainability and survival. The T-72 design, they're literally sitting on a carousel of the ammunition underneath them. It's because they use an auto loader. It lets them have a smaller crew. It lets them have a rapid rate of fire. But here's the thing. You can replace tanks faster than you can train a tank crew. Remember, this is a Soviet design. And the Soviet design was... People are just as replaceable as the parts and the machinery is. We know that's not true. The American military for a long time has prioritized things like crew survival and the morale and benefit of its troops, and it shows on the battlefield. Things like ideology, like a dictatorial system, like a top-down Soviet system, it matters because it penetrates things like tank development. You may think that's ridiculous, but that's exactly what's happening here. They wanted a piece that was expendable. They had, think crews are expendable, and they left them vulnerable, and it's killing the Russian troops by the thousands because they prioritized something other than crew survivability. You can take a crew and put them in a new tank. It takes months to train a good tank crew. Ideology matters, and it shows up on the battlefield. And unfortunately for the Russian troops, they're paying for that ideology by the thousands with their very lives. More Hotel right after this.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome back to Hurtel. One of our favorites, one of the superstars of Young Voices. We have a lot of them on. We don't play favorites. She's one of our favorites. Um, Gabrielle Hoffman, the program before. We always enjoy talking to her. We're going to talk a little conservation today. How are you, ma'am? Welcome back. Good to be with you, Andrew. Thank you for having me on. Doing well. She is, she is an award-winning writer, very talented writer. She has a list of credits that will make anybody jealous. Of course, a Young Voices contributor. She's got a lot of irons in the fire, and one of those irons in the fire is you had yourself a very busy Earth Day. You're, of course, an avid outdoorist. We're talking conservation today. What did you do for Earth Day? Because I was up in West Virginia, which if you're going to be somewhere, West Virginia is a darn fine place to celebrate nature and the outdoors. Tell us about your Earth Day because you kept yourself rather busy, didn't you? I did. I was actually in Nebraska for a conservation-related summit, which we can go into detail as the conversation progresses. So I wasn't really outdoors on Earth Day itself, but I made up for it over the weekend doing some trout fishing in the mountains on the Virginia-West Virginia border, and I caught myself some decent brown and rainbow trout. Can't complain. Yeah, that's good stuff, especially if you cook it just right. Let's start right there. We've had this conversation before, but I always want to assume, make sure the audience is with us on this. I want to start with the nomenclature again because people use these words and I don't think they put all the full meaning behind them. When we're talking conservation, when we're talking environmentalism as it is currently uh, conducted, especially in the social media realm where we're discussing some really touchy and sensitive issues, kind of define those terms for us a little bit and why conservation is something you've really championed. You have a wonderful podcast, District of Conservation. Um, why is it you take that label, even though you're talking about environmental things, you're talking about regulatory things? Just explain why that term is so meaningful to you and how you've kind of tried to reclaim that term in a lot of ways. Yeah, I'm not the only one doing it. I'm just probably one with a bigger platform that is keen on doing so. But it really is important to make a distinction between the various shades of environmentalism. Environmentalism isn't a one size fits all type of thing. It actually has a lot of shades, a lot of iterations. I think the best way to describe environmentalism is to put it into two camps. You have preservation which really discourages kind of human input. It calls for no touching, no development or management of natural resources, kind of like a rewilding of practices. And you see that often on the environmental left, kind of the status quo environmental movement. They really do admonish free markets and capitalism. They don't really like that. And they want the heavy hand of government to dictate the outcomes relating to environment. And that can be problematic, of course, as we know. Conservation, on the other hand, I think is the more preferable shade of environmentalism that I think most people would agree with and support. And the United States, all things considered, has been a leader in environmentalism with obviously putting into rules, putting rules into effect that do contribute to cleaner air, cleaner water, stewardship practices, and a balanced use approach. And conservation calls for the wise management of natural resources. Doesn't say no management, but the wise management. And that can include for recreational purposes, whether you're recreating on lands to fish and hunt, or even if you're making a livelihood, such as whether you're doing timber, grazing, farming, cattle ranching, and other 
related intensive activities that a lot of people admonish and take for granted, especially when they don't know where their food comes from. So it really is easy to define what environmentalism is. Oftentimes conservation is conflated with preservation. And a lot of people in the environmental left love to conflate the two terms. They often say conservation is very anti-capitalistic. It has to be this way. And that's intentional. That's intentional for them to kind of distort what the meaning of it is. And that's why I think many people on the right are often really ambivalent and kind of reluctant to champion the environmental cause because it is so misunderstood what this term is. So I think many like me, a handful like me in media and hopefully in grassroots and other niche areas are able to kind of reclaim that term. I've been doing so for the past few years on my podcast, through my writings. And a lot of people are trying to make the distinction because like any other charged term, I think the left loves to distort what things are. They distort what disinformation is. They distort what uh, the truth is or things of that sort. So conservation is really easy to distort if it goes unchallenged. So I think that's that's kind of the long end of it, but a good summary of what we're dealing with and what we're up against and why conservation has to be accurately portrayed. One of the big differences between environmentalism as it's currently, again, it's a broad term. You can make it mean just about anything you want to make it mean. I'm just in the parlance, especially on social media, as we see it thrown around in the news media. Environmentalism has gotten very doom and gloom. It's gotten very fatalistic in a lot of ways. You talked about this when you're writing it inside sources, though. Part of conservation is starting from a positive viewpoint of like, yeah, there's a lot of things we can work on here, but things are conservation wise, environmental wise in, in America things are actually pretty good, especially if you kind of take a global perspective, things like water, things like land use. Talk about that for a minute, because sometimes we don't talk about the good news and that skews your perspective. And then when we go on to talk about things like we're going to in a minute, like land use, this is the important missing piece to a lot of this because people need to understand, yes, you can responsibly do this stuff and still be environmentally minded. That's missing from this conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, again, it's intentional. It's to scare people. It's to fear monger, to say that we're in a very perilous time when it comes to the environment. And then when studies come out, empirical data and university statistics or or studies that come from universities, it actually points to the fact that maybe not all is awry with the American environmental landscape. A lot of good things have happened. We've rectified a lot of problems that were emanating from the 60s and 70s. Pollution is arguably way down. There's still some problems with it, of course. Uh, Water is a lot cleaner today than it was half a century ago. You can drink water. And there are certainly areas across the country where they still have to deal with water crises and all. But I would say overall, most drinking situations, water situations, they're improving or doing a lot better. When it comes to land use and also conserving wildlife, we have a lot more wildlife today than ever before, especially the turn of the 20th century, largely because of hunters and anglers and their contributions through excise taxes paid on hunting licenses, fishing licenses, guns and ammunition. So we have a lot of things to celebrate. That's what me and Mandy Gunasekera, formerly EPA chief of staff to the most recent Trump EPA administrator, Andrew Wheeler, So we wanted to highlight the positive contributions of the environment because there's a lot to extol. There's a lot of good things. We are reducing our emissions like no other. We're at historic lows of emissions um, in terms of production for that. People are looking to natural gas and they're looking to nuclear as a way to curb your emissions, but to still have reliable energy and to not be wholly dependent on our adversaries for energy sources. So we wanted to highlight, obviously, the positive things that are happening. And there are many things that are happening And even outside government, 
a lot of positive conservation success, uh, successes, excuse me, are occurring. We see more and more people voluntarily getting involved to, let's say, clean up water streams, to recover imperiled species, to advocate for different causes more effectively than, let's say, top-down solutions or the federal government will do. We see a lot of private companies and nonprofits stepping up big time. I highlighted in a policy focus with IWF that there are, let's say, three examples of voluntary action or market innovations occurring. One being uh, the issue for, let's say, addressing wildfires, high intensity wildfires. There's a nonprofit called Blue Forest Conservation that likes to, that's putting out a, te- a, a thing called the resiliency bond to help with kind of the funding mechanism shortcomings with respect to funding uh, forest management efforts. And that really is going to start taking off. There's also kind of an alternative to conservation easements called an elk occupancy agreement that is starting to take hold in Montana. That is a project that PERC and I think the Greater Yellowstone Eco or Greater Yellowstone Coalition are spearheading. So landowners can protect off certain portions of their land for elk habitat, all the while still maintaining control on their property. So that's something that could be discussed as a alternative to a conservation easement in perpetuity. And then there's also for-profit organizations like Four Oceans, which is actually helping to reduce plastics waste happening globally. And they're using the means of the market, not so much the government, to clean up different areas across the globe that are subject to plastic waste. And what they do is they reconvert things and they hand out bracelets or hand up, they sell bracelets and other merchandise. Uh, and then they promise like with every purchase, they're going to clean, clean up a pound of waste. So there's a lot of positive things happening that often don't get highlighted. A lot of innovations coming. And I think more and more people are starting to see that government can actually hinder your ability to be incentivized to better the environment. I live in the Washington, D.C. area, as you know, and I actually saw a friend of mine who leans more to the left. He's a fly fishing guide. And this is an area where actually a lot of people right and left can agree. He was very dismayed by the fact that the National Park Service is not doing an adequate job of cleaning up fishing areas on National Park Service lands or waters that body. So like right near, uh, what is it, Great Falls, there's a lot of fishing near the Trainbridge Road, really good for shad fishing, really good for freshwater opportunities. But those areas are often neglected and people litter there like crazy. So you see people on the right and left saying, we need to address this. Where is the government? Where are the agencies or law enforcement in trying to clean up these areas? So even, even people who are receptive to more preservationist type Solutions are saying, okay, the agency is failing at cleaning and keeping our spaces clean. And that's a problem. I often see litter all the time um, whenever I go outdoors, especially close to the city. And that's really lamentable. And that's not really a partisan problem, but you just have a lack of regard of surrounding, sadly, among many Americans still. And government compelling you to clean up your area, I think, doesn't incentivize people. People are going to trash and litter even with government encouraging you to to have a cleaner space. So I don't think a lecture from the government is compelling people to make their environment better. So I think market solutions and voluntary action will compel people people more so to clean up and, and leave spaces better off than they found them. Yeah, talking to Gabriella Hoffman, one of our favorites, talking a little conservation and environmental stuff today. I, I agree with you on that. There's a thread through everything you just said, because when we poli- policies are really people and politics is how people deal with policy. Um, 
there's a thread through what you just said. You just mentioned a friend of yours a little bit more to your left of you, but you both enjoy fly fishing. So you have a commonality there. I know I have some friends in DC who are very, very progressive on environmental issues, but I also see on their social media, they go clean up on the river. Mm -hmm. If I see you cleaning up on the river, I'm going to give you a little bit more hearing on your environmental issues because you're putting skin in the game. There's some personal stuff to this where if we could get it out of the policy realm a little bit, and I understand those things are important, but and we've talked about this before, there's some natural allyship that could get past a few things like landowners and environmentalists, hunters and fishermen and outdoorsmen and environmentalists, but they have some political barriers because, you know, obviously landowners, they're going to be wary of regulation and these things, mm-hmm. hunters and fishermen, um, some of the more progressive folks will probably get a little freaked out over things like guns and Second Amendment and those people carry guns all the time. But if you could get past the political stuff, there's a ton of overlap there if you could just kind of get the conversation going, isn't there? Absolutely. I've seen this firsthand in recreational fishing, in the outdoor industry on many occasions. And I think it's possible the reliance on using policy to change environmental outcomes, I think, is going to become an outdated model. And like I said, I think people on both sides of the political spectrum are going to see the shortcomings with trying to deal out policy to think that it's going to rectify a problem. Also, just putting a lot of money towards something much like an education where you pump in money and you're not getting a return on investment or education languishes and doesn't improve. I think the same can also soon be, I think, applied to conservation. Anytime you pour money into a problem, it's going to get subject to fraud and waste and you're not going to see those monies distributed fully and used to their fullest potential. I think of the America the Beautiful push, which is related to 30 by 30, which I know we'll cover in our segment but they just said they're going to appropriate a billion dollars for it. How is that going to be stewarded? How is that money going to be properly appropriated? I have concerns about that. It's not because I want to oppose the Biden administration at every turn, although I do largely disagree with their agenda, but we have to call into question, okay, all these monies, which are not really uh, discretionary spending that's supposed to be you know, funded every year, where are these extra funds coming from? Is it going to be subjected to waste and fraud? Is it going to be properly used? So I think people are realizing the shortcomings of regulation and just putting money anywhere into an issue and not knowing where that money is going to and the lack of stewardship that can come with it. So I think people will look and crave for alternatives where there's not so much waste going on and that we can fix things quickly without relying on government regulations to change anything now, like a regulation because there's a lack of NEPA reforms that are sadly not transpiring, it'll take years to, let's say, have certain projects come to a foot to have certain laws have red tape cut from them. So I think people will see, oh gosh, I can't change this. Like what's going on? We're not, we're not hearing from our lawmakers. It's complicating ways. So people can find, I think, alternatives and use innovative approaches to address problems without the purse of government. I'm really, really optimistic on that front. And I think with just the butting of the heads between the federal government and the states and localities, I think everyone, regardless of politics, will see that the federal government is not doing a good job executing conservation practices and that they're largely going to incline to preservation practices and be beholden to special interests who don't want them to, let's say, practice wildlife conservation or to have balance use or energy development that can be safe and properly executed. Yeah, talking to Gabriella Hoffman, we come back, we're going to get into some of those issues, especially that stewardship term. That's an important one. We'll delve into that a little bit. We're going to talk about land uses, the 30 for 30 program, conserving 30% of lands, 30% of waters by 2030. 
Is that an adequate goal or is it an arbitrary number that's going to wind up with a lot of money and not a lot of effort? Going to continue our conversation with Gabriella Hoffman, one of our favorites, Young Voices contributor, talking a little conservation today, and we'll continue to do so right after this on Hurt. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. We're continuing our conversation with Gabrielle Hoffman, talking a little environmental and conservation. Let's throw another term in there, good biblical term if you grew up uh, as church folks, but other uh, faith-based groups have similar things as well. But stewardship is a term that you actually used, kind of like conservation. It's gotten a little bit of a negative connotation, but stewardship goes back to what we were just talking about, and it leads into what we want to talk about with land usage of, hey, we have this thing this land's going to be here before us. It's going to be here after us. How do we steward it? Because it's not ours, even if we own it. Talk about that mindset and how that could change policy when it comes to things like land use. Absolutely. And when I talk to centerite audiences across the country or even through virtual formats, I often mention that you can use stewardship interchangeably with conservation. There are a lot of parallels, and I think the terms are very similar. And I think in terms of, let's say, conservation being a conservative concept, I try to marry the two ideas and showcase that we're inherently like this and even libertarians too. You're inherently conservation minded. You just don't realize it yet. Especially if you're a landowner, you run a cattle operation, maybe you're a hunting or fishing outfitter, or you have access to private land or you manage land with others, things of that sort. So I think most people look to those who steward the land, those who feed this country, those who offer recreational opportunities on private land and you see that they care very deeply about their surroundings. They, if let's say they're in commerce and they have to make money, you know, have a profit from their operations, they don't want to have land that is tilled that is terrible or that is not good soil or their livestock are prone to disease. I think you talk to most ranchers or cattlemen and they'll tell you they love the land that they, let's say, make a livelihood off of. They love their livestock. They love their surroundings. I've talked to people in Florida. I've talked to people in the Mountain West. And you see that same love of land and stewardship echoed regardless of where you are in the country, because it would be counterintuitive for them to just, let's say, develop or to not set aside land for protection or preservation uses, but also to allow for opportunities to, let's say, have a you know, commerce related component, or if you're fishing and hunting, allow people to, let's say, if they want to harvest something or they want to take fish out of, let's say, different streams, then you can allow it, but also subject it to state regulations. However, you want to do it. Obviously, for hunting, you want to definitely <laughs> adhere to state regulations, but for fishing too, um, you also want to adhere to that as well. But it, it, stewardship is leaving the land better than you found it. And I think that's a very inherently conservative or conservative and even libertarian ideal. You don't want things to be worse than you found it. I don't know any conservative or libertarian off the top of my head who was like, yes, I want to despoil the land and water that we use and drink and thrive off of. That's extremely counterintuitive. And I think that's a very politically charged, let's say, image that was concocted by many on the left, the environmental left, because conservatives didn't have a response to different environmental problems, or if they were, they were very progressive and they agreed with a lot of those environmentalists on the left. So now, 40 years later, after free market environmentalism started to take foot, that's where I think people started to become more comfortable with saying, yes, I'm a good steward of the land. You could trace it to your belief in Judeo-Christian values, or you could trace it to just what you do 
uh, in both ways. I think people can relate to it from a religious mean or from a practical means and see that, yes, I already do this. I should talk about this more positively and talk about why it's counterintuitive to not care about the land you make a livelihood off of or the land that you like to recreate on. And I think you talk to most conservatives, they agree with that. They agree with the stewardship model and they agree with balanced use, having multiple uses, especially if you live against public lands as well. So there's a lot to take away from that term, but I think it is perfectly ap applicable in the political sense too. And I think you'll start to see more people storytell and kind of share their perspective using that as a frame of reference, using the stewardship term as a frame of reference. So talking to Gabriella Hoffman, uh, is the 30 for 30 plan good stewardship? This is a Biden administrative plan. Look, I, I know how these things go because I've done enough meetings and management stuff. This looks great on a slideshow. Uh, oh, it's 30% water and 30% land by 2030. Uh, like that's easy to sell. That's easy to pitch. But is it good policy? Because what's getting into, and when you brought this up, when you wrote about it at Pew, there's a lot of fine detail here where what they're actually trying to do with a lot of this is they're trying to get into private lands and easements and conservatorships and now we're into things like, well, <laughs> these have specific legal definitions. These aren't just buzzwords and terms. Is this good use of land? And then we're right back to where we started with this conversation. What does that word conserve? Conserve. Does that mean use it at all? Does that mean no use? Uh, this stuff seems to keep running on a loop right back to this. So turn down the noise on that 30 by 30 buzzword and tell us what you actually think of this program. Yeah, I'll give some context for your listeners briefly. This issue, this initiative was actually kind of globally discussed before Biden came into office. They were pushing this in 2020. They were holding a summit in China about this issue. So this didn't just come out of thin air. This is largely an idea uh, to get the global community on board this. So when you see that, it's a little uh, it gives off a little bit of sirens in your mind. But besides that, so Biden said in his first executive order on climate early on to his administration that they want to push this idea of 30 by 30, conserving 30% of public waters and public lands by 2030. Sounds great. And upon announcement of it, a lot of people were starting to question like, why 30 by 30? Could this be extended to 50 by 50? What is conservation defined as? They started to hear public opinion say, okay, maybe this phrasing is not good. So let's rebrand it as America the Beautiful. And once their report was released in May, stemming from the executive order that came out in June of 2020, you started to see little mention of 30 by 30. It was more so branded as America the Beautiful. We're going to get sportsmen and women on board. We're going to respect private property rights. And it sounds great. It sounds hunky-dory. But you read through the America the Beautiful plan, it's maybe a couple pages, I think maybe a few dozen pages. And I was reading through the specifics about it and certain alarms went off in my mind. Yes, they say that they're going to respect voluntary action. They're going to respect landowners and hunters and anglers, and they recognize their role in conservation. But to me, it sounded like they're going to give preference to certain special interest groups more so. They didn't define what conservation is, like you said, any management to be done, no management. What is it going to look like? And then also when they talk about the percentages, I think the Department of Interior claimed, and I wrote about this at IWF in a fact check, unicorn fact check, and they claim that only 12% of lands is conserved or protected, much like only 23% of oceans and water. So when you go to the U.S. Geological Service where they pulled this information from, they concluded if you include like three tiers, close, there are like four measures or four tiers, and they only do like one or two tiers. I also factored in three tiers, close to four tiers. 
And when you account for that lands that are sectioned off to any use, multiple use, especially the number comes out to over 40%, 40.6% of BLM land, forest service land, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service land, and other uh, public lands that are off limits to multiple uses. So why are they putting out conflicting numbers? Why are only why are they very selective about what is conserved and what is not conserved? And so when they're going to be, let's say, uh, questioned on that, how are they going to respond that they're only selectively applying data that is perfectly available on the government's website? So for my concern with it, I don't like that they're putting misinformation about what percentage of lands is actually conserved. And then you read through the plan. They talk about 3030 is just a bare minimum. They could save 50% of waters and lands by 2050. They said it's at a minimum. The potential could be even more. So knowing the government, they'll have the potential to save. We're not really content with this goal. Let's do more. And then they say that this is not only going to be exclusive to public lands and public waters. They say we want to incentivize landowners to set aside lands and waters for so-called conservation uses. And when I hear that the government is going to incentivize people, this is on page 10 of the America, the beautiful plan, alarm bells go off for me again. Government shouldn't be incentivizing because it'll come with strings attached. What limits will you have? Let's say if you put your land in a permanent conservation easement or you sell your land entirely, not even as a conservation easement, but you decide to set it aside for rewilding purposes or a wilderness area. Are you going to have any control over your private property? Are you going to have any say? Or the government is going to just basically take it from you and you'll have no say over it instead of a shared kind of responsibility between that. So when it comes to the private element, a lot of people are very concerned. I was in Nebraska, as I alluded to earlier in the program, at this 30 by 30, Stop 30 by 30 Summit hosted by Governor Pete Ricketts and an organization called American Stewards of Liberty. Naturally, of course, some opponents of their efforts, supporters of 30 by 30, one in particular, the Center for Biological, or not Center for Biological, Center for Western Priorities. There's so many of these acronym alphabet type organizations that sound great, but actually have dubious kind of meanings behind their organizations. But this one group, they put me on their list of disinformation artists on 3030, although I'm taking information from the federal government, which is funny. Um, They call anything they dislike disinformation, and that's getting quite tired. I think a lot of people are um, not let's say, giving into that kind of descriptor as often. But I attended this conference. This was not some tinfoil hat affair. These people were very serious about land stewardship. The governor of Nebraska argued that Nebraska already does conservation in its own fashion and that they don't need the government coming in to tell them how to best steward their land. So I love the fact that Governor Ricketts had talked about Nebraska does a model. Every state has a different conservation model and that they don't need top-down interference or top-down let's say recommendations to come in and tell states how to manage lands more effectively. And 14 other states had signed on to Governor Ricketts letter opposing this initiative because like I said, the lack of clarity in terms of what conservation means, whether or not it is acceptable to have land, let's say in a permanent conservation easement and also for recreational purposes. I talk about this from a recreational purpose. What happens when you protect or claim you're gonna protect lands? Does it lead to the subsequent cutting of access? And I hearken back to, and I explained when I spoke at the summit myself, I'm concerned about the recreation component to it, to public waters and public lands, especially California passed a very similar law with respect to recreational fishing or marine life protection. It's called the Marine Life Protection Act of 1999. I remember growing up in California, hearing about this law and hearing announcements that they're going to limit your ability to recreationally fish from Santa Barbara, California, all the way down to San Diego, because they said there was overfishing. 
I saw some analysis recently from a coalition of sport fishing groups, which represent recreational saltwater and freshwater angling interests, especially saltwater. And they concluded that this policy had no effect on limiting or very minimal effect on limiting overfishing under the guise of protecting these marine areas. What it did subsequently do when it was enacted under the guise of protections, it hurt this multi-billion dollar industry. And it also cut off opportunities to recreationally fish because they said interference from recreational anglers would lead to biodiversity loss with respect to fish species. So we see laws like this that sound very positive, that sound great, that have a greater meaning. They get enacted and it's really hard to regain access, especially on the public front when the government more so explicitly defines that a public area is going to be off limits or the protection will kick off people. And that is not how public lands laws are supposed to work. You're supposed to be enhancing access, not discouraging it under the guise of protection. And so like you had alluded to, Andrew, when government often intervenes, it can come at a loss of people's livelihoods and even their public lands access. And I talked about this for Desiree News, when I wrote an op-ed for Young Voices a few months ago about national monuments, it's a very similar principle that sometimes these public land laws, they sound great and they may be great in principle, but when implemented, it causes people to not have the same access opportunities. You're supposed to have access on public lands and public waters. If you don't, what's the point of having these laws that allow for it? Um, it's the old saying, uh, there's nothing so close to eternal life as a government program, probably goes double for conservation easements as well. Gabriella Hoffman. You know this stuff backwards and forwards. It's good to talk conservation. Uh, we're going to keep talking about this because I, I love conservation. I come from a beautiful part of the country that has had to fight this from the government to coal companies to everything else. Uh, and we just got a national park. So this this stuff's right mm-hmm. in my backyard right now because folks are kind of figuring out what that means, where the federal land starts. But, you know, this stuff's all got to be worked out, even though it got drawn on a map. There's some practicalities involved. You are fantastic on this. We'll keep having you back until we get you back on the program again, though. Let folks know where they can follow you, where you're writing, and what you got going on until we see you on Hertel again. Sure. Youngvoices.com. I'm also a regional leader now, so I'll be covering the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic. So anyone interested in applying for the program from West Virginia, Virginia, and up, let's talk. I would love to see your application go through the Young Voices program. I have a website, GabriellaHoffman.com. You'll find all my podcasts, all my writings, social media accounts, and I would love to connect with your listeners and to talk more about this again in the future. Yep. And she's on the Young Voices page. She's really easy to find. She's right beside me. Uh, she's uh, They put her there to make me look younger, I think. Uh, <laughs> Gabriella Hoffman, you're fantastic. We always enjoy the conversations. Do sign up for Young Voices. It's a great program. That's why I work with them. I've The quality of people is superb. Uh, definitely do that and reach out to her. Thank you so much for your time today. Always appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. You too. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Uh, welcome back to Hertel. You remember uh, a while back, uh, Edwardsville, Illinois, uh, the Amazon warehouse that got hit by a tornado. And uh, this was just bad. It's horrible. Tornadoes are just the most one of the most destructive things in nature. They're unpredictable in a lot of ways. But uh, this is from KMOVTV.com. Uh, federal investigators have told Amazon they need to do more to protect employees after the Edwardsville tornado disaster. Tuesday, the Occupational Safety and Health Administration announced Amazon's severe emergency procedures met minimal federal safety guidelines for storm sheltering. The organization is calling on Amazon to make improvements to protect workers and contract drivers in future emergencies. 
These tragic deaths have sparked discussions nationwide on the vital need for comprehensive workplace emergency plans, said OSHA's regional administrator, William Donovan, in Chicago. Employers should reevaluate their emergency plans for the safest shelter-in-place locations and prepare before an emergency to ensure workers know where to go and how to keep themselves safe in the event of a disaster. Calling on Amazon to be an industry leader for workplace safety, said Assistant Secretary of Labor for OSHA, Doug Parker. Six six workers died in this event. It was a tragic event that in and of itself should be a wake-up call to employers. OSHA's hazard alert letter recommends the following areas of improvement, ensuring all employees provide ground training. Uh, Here's the thing. I've spent a large portion of my adult life in warehouses, loading docks, and similar type facilities. That's how I put food on the table for many, many years. Warehouses are uniquely prone to something like a tornado because by their design, they have to be big open buildings. They're usually metal frame buildings, which means if something like a tornado hits them, they're going to be toast really fast. That's not even really anybody's fault. That's just the nature of the beast. Here's where it does get into something important, though. Folks know when there's a really bad storm, when you're a manager and I've been there, it's hard to shut down production when you're in that go, go, go mentality, especially at a company like an Amazon, where you're trying to push out what you're doing and you're working and you're struggling and it's go and there's pressure and there's deadlines. It is incumbent upon the management and the leadership to always remember that your number one priority is the safety of your people. Now, the company met minimal safety standards, and there are some politics involved here because Amazon's the biggest dog on the block, which means the government's going to focus on them, and the media's going to focus on them anytime there's something going on because there's all kinds of stuff, and they're just a big company right now. So they're going to take all the slings and arrows. But they do deserve a little bit of blame here for a few things. Minimal standards, when you're the biggest company in the world, probably isn't good enough. And as soon as there's a bad storm or bad weather or whatever the case may be, and you know there's the potential for something, no matter how hard it is, no matter how much money you lose, no matter how much the regional bosses or the overhead bosses get mad, when it gets bad, you got to shut down and take care of your people. I've had it happen. I've been there. I've made that call. I've gotten the phone call from the regionals like, why are you shutting down? And I'm like, it's not safe. We're shutting down. We're going to shelter in place. As soon as it's safe, we'll go back to working. I've had those conversations. I've had those phone calls. Sometimes they get mad if you have somebody that doesn't understand. If you got good management, they'll completely understand that you shut down. But you got to take care of your people. Buildings can get rebuilt. Trucks can be replaced. People, not so much. It's incumbent on the places that we work that they take care of us as people. And conversely, it's incumbent on us as managers and as employees to make sure we're giving good information to the company like, hey, this ain't safe. We're going to stop. I understand that's a tough call in a lot of places, but it's the only call because you can't replace somebody that died or got permanently injured. And then you've made a whole lot more problems for a whole lot of folks that are far beyond just what your production schedule was. More Heard Tell right after this. Uh, Welcome back to Heard Tell. You know, we always try to end on a good note. So there's something in the water up in Wisconsin. This is WGLR.com up yonder in Wisconsin, a Trepolo County man who will say the years of our lives are only as good as how they're spent. This Pigeon Falls celebrity can share more than a century of stories. Sometimes the best way to live a life is to go with the flow. It's a great, great life, said Pigeon Falls native Reynolds Tomter. Tomter rides the wave of a town he's called more than home for more than 80 years. His lifelong friend, Leland Chenoweth, has a word to describe this World War II veteran. Positivity, Chenoweth said. 
You'll never get an argument out of Reynolds. Tomter's daughter, Julie Tomter Warner, said the personality has one limit. And he says, she said that's when the Packers are not doing well. People might recognize Tomter from the golf course. News 8 now spoke with Tomter back in 2012 as part of the Jennifer Livingston In Search Of series, and he's welcoming soul to everyone he meets. Quote, he's the first one to show up every morning at 7.30 for his coffee, said Deb Dwyer, owner of the My Second Home Bar and Grill in Pigeon Forest. Tomter takes Dwyer's breath away. One time he hopped up the steps. He's just amazing, I have to say. I've been lucky, Tomter said, and having good health. It's the best gift of all when you celebrate as many birthdays as he has. He's 105 now. It's unreal, Tomter said. This moment leaves Reynolds without words. After all, who wouldn't want to live out their dreams of having a happy birthday party at the bar when you're 105 years old? Uh, we've been having a real party, Tomter said, and he's a chip off the old block, said Helen Haverson, a longtime friend of Tomter. Halverson is also a member of the Century Fraternity. Add Chenoweth to that list, too. That's more than 300 years of life, standing side by side. Tomter credits a good attitude to his longevity. If you don't have a good attitude, you could have aches and pains almost any place. Perhaps there's something in the water in Pigeon Creek, or maybe it's the love shared between family and friends over 105 years that has carved Reynolds' own path of least resistance. Everybody takes care of each other, he said. We've all enjoyed it together. Reynolds is one of Wisconsin's oldest living World War II veterans. To put his age into perspective, Tomter was born a decade prior to the great depression so three centurions celebrating the 105th birthday of mr tomter uh, world war ii veteran god bless you sir and all your friends may you enjoy good health for as long as you want to you certainly deserve it that'll do it for her tell thank you so much for joining us on this monday we'll be right back here again tomorrow if you haven't subscribed yet please make sure to do so it's completely free it only costs you a click whether that's on the YouTube page or on any of the podcasting platforms, you can actually do both. Nobody's going to say a word to you. We won't show. We're not judgy like that. Do subscribe, though. It keeps you from missing out anything we do. Heard Tell Show every weekday morning. The Good Talks interview segments every afternoon. Twice on Sunday's show. If you missed it, it was a great one because we had such a great week last week. That's on there as well, including some of the deep dive podcasts we also do for you. So until we see you again tomorrow, we hope wherever you and yours are, you are well, you are well fed. We'll talk to you tomorrow for more Herd Tell. All the music on Herd Tell is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.